85. Psalm 85, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Rest again. Sorry. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Verse 2 and 3, to reiterate, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Let's go to him. Lord, we come this morning to praise and honor and lift our hearts and our lives before you again anew this day. Father, how majestic is your glory. How unsearchable are your ways. All creation screams your glory and your righteousness. And Father, we come before you a very broken people. Lord, you know our brokenness very well. And Lord, yet you sought to love us. You sought to redeem us, to bring us back to a right and beautiful relationship with you through Jesus Christ, through his crucifixion, through his resurrection. And Lord, we humbly come before you and anew lay our lives anew because you ask us to humble ourselves before you daily. Father, and Lord, that you may be our all in all, you are, that you are our all in life, you are our all in death. And Father, that there'd be nothing in this world to dethrone you in our hearts. And Father, we give you the thanks, especially for your Holy Spirit that you've entrusted to all who believe in Christ. Father, that you've brought us together into a church that is just marvelous and wonderful. And Father, that you have taken us who are different walks of life and you have brought us for one purpose, and that is to glorify your name and to glorify your name in, in our homes and in our communities. And Father, we give you thanks for this day anew to come to rejoice Thank you for the beauty of the sun this morning, the freshness of the rain, the cleansing of the rain. And, uh, Father, that the smoke is gone. And, Father, in the same way, Christ has removed all those things, all the sin, all the baggage that has bound us together and has bound us from before birth. And, Lord, we come before you refreshed and renewed uh, to lift our names before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. And if I'm going to ask if you're able, stay standing. It's hard to sit through these songs. I'm sorry. So if you're not, please do sit, though, okay? Solid rock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give thanks this day for your presence in our lives for your will to call us to your good deeds Lord to rejoice in your grace and love and thankfulness for Jesus Christ in his sacrifice on a cross that we may stand before you right
based on Christ's blood alone. Thank you for the beauty of the creation that we live in. The rounding colors at this time of year and the brightness of the sun as uh, the air has been cleared of the smoke and we can see the blueness of the sky, the white on the mountain, and the reds and yellows and greens of the leaves on the trees. Lord, these are wonderful things to look upon here, but it's only a slight reflection of what is to come when we are in your presence and in your glory. We look forward to that day, Lord, that uh, we will stand before you and we will spend eternity in your presence in your heavenly, heavenly realm. So thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you bless us this day, bless this time together. Bless you, bless us for your word, for the music and the praise that we get to sing. And for freedom, freedom that we have, Lord, to meet openly and worship you. In all this, we give thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So I feel like we're at a wedding. Everyone is nervous, right, John? <laughs> Sophie? <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that we do when the, when the bride, when the groom comes, uh, the bride comes down the aisle and, the, and she stands there with the groom. And so we just kind of stop and just take a big breath. So I know that we're nervous and it, John and Sophie are nervous. So I just want you to just take a big breath. Ready? All righty. So. Okay, that's all out of the way. All right. So, uh, you know, it, it is a, a privilege to introduce my son. No, just joking. Uh, and, uh, you know, by the way, I, I don't mean to steal his thunder, but uh, his dad is here too, Henry. So, uh, so anyway, uh, that, that is his dad's real name, Henry. So, so anyway, uh, but he looked at dad as he came in. He goes, no, that's not my dad. So. Uh, so anyway, we are excited to have John and Sophie, and they have uh, three wonderful, amazing kids, and they're in the back, and their names are Leo, Gloria, and Owen. And uh, and so, you know, one of the things I just want to say as we come together and meet together, especially after our coffee hour, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of like a, a greeting and a reception, you know, just to greet the bride and groom or whatever. So, you know, please retain your questions to just hi and, you know, just greet them. And, and uh, uh, so I, I would like to pray for John right now and uh, just to invite him to our pulpit. So, Father God, we thank you so much. Lord, thank you so much that you are the God of glory, that you are the creator of heaven and earth. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your amazing, miraculous, saving plan. Lord, that you uh, decided that you chose to, uh, Lord, uh, to present your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, to save us, to rescue us. Lord, we were all once blind and in darkness. Uh, God, we thank you, Lord, so much for bringing us into your amazing, marvelous light. And Father, that gives us great joy. And uh, Lord, we are starting in. Uh, we're in the book of Philippians and we're looking at, uh, Father, just how you desire us to be joyful in all situations and all occasions. Lord, we lift up our, our brother to you, John, and we just ask that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would just take all the jitters out. Lord, just move him. Uh, Lord, just relax his, his heart and soul. God, give him, uh, Lord, the ability to speak your words, Lord, your words of truth. God, we ask uh, all these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Amen. John, will you come? Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is such a joy to finally be here with you this morning. Uh, it has been such a pleasure getting to know the elders over the last few months, uh, hearing of their love for you, 
uh, hearing of how loving and hospitable and generous you all are. And then on top of that, actually uh, so encouraged and uh, honored to be able to see that and experience it, uh, even if from a distance. Uh, but Sophie and I have been so encouraged uh, uh, to hear how you have, for example, have come together uh, to prepare everything for this trip, uh, providing a place for us to stay, uh, vehicles to drive, baby equipment that we need, uh, and also how you have come together to get that rental property in order, uh, how diligent you all have been to make sure that the elders pass on your concerns to us about making sure that we know what the weather is like here in Washington. <laughs> and, and let me just add to that, uh, Paul Morgan has been so diligent in that manner and has made it his mission to make sure that we were clear on that uh, multiple times. So I assure you uh, that we have been made aware. Uh, but really, thank you for the honesty and the desire to make sure that we know uh, what it's like here. Um, please do excuse us as we experience some jet lag. Um, I do have a headache right now, but especially my children, uh, my one-year-old, he still wakes up in the middle of the night for a bottle, and he did so at 3 a.m. last night. And as I was walking out to give him his bottle, I noticed that the light in the other two kids' rooms uh, was on. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe my daughter just turned the light on and but how can they be sleeping, you know, in there? So I walked in to turn the light off. And as I opened the door, I see both of them on the floor playing with a puzzle. Um, and they've been awake since. So, so yeah. But, again, thank you for having us. Uh, thank you for the warm reception. Uh, it has already been a wonderful time here this morning worshiping with you all through prayer, scripture, uh, reading, through song. And I'm looking forward now to continuing our worship of our God uh, through the preaching of the word. Now, before we get started, there is a thought uh, that is weighing a little heavy on me that I would like to address. Uh, we all know why I am here. And we all know that next Sunday after the service, the members will come together and vote on whether or not to extend the call for me to be your next senior pastor. And what I'm wanting to address right now is the fact that, in a sense, my preaching this morning is, so, is somewhat of a job interview, uh, which really brings a slight level of discomfort to me <laughs> in one sense. But on the other, uh, it is, of course, necessary. Uh, there is a sense in which you need to be discerning and properly critical as you all make this very important decision. Uh, but the reason why I bring it up right now is because the discomfort I have comes from a fear that that's the only way in which some of you may be tempted to interact with the preaching this morning. And that concerns me because there's a sense in which uh, that would be taking away from the purpose and the mentality that we as Christians should come prepared with each time we sit under the preaching of the Word of God. In other words, you might not benefit as much as you could from the preaching this morning if you are overly focused on my style of preaching or how I look up here or how I move or not move, what bad habits I might have that annoy you, how differently I preach from Dan, even though we have the same last name. <clears throat> And so you wonder, could I sit under this guy's quirks and habits or lack thereof for the foreseeable future if I vote to install him as next senior pastor? And so I say all that to say that my hope is that we would all enter into the preaching of the word this morning with expecting hearts, ready to feast on the word of God more so than asking these job interview questions. And the same goes for me. Uh, I've had to prepare my own heart throughout my preparation for the sermon, making sure that I was not preparing as if to land the job. And I think I can tell you with a sincere heart that my purpose and my desire this morning above all else 
is simply to feed your souls. And so, my hope is that you would seek, that you would grab a hold of whatever gold or treasure might be presented from the Word, and that you would focus on whatever may encourage your soul and or whatever may help you to subdue your sin as a priority. Though there is some truth in saying that this is like a jogger. Because there are much greater things at stake. Weighty, eternal things. Of which we, of which we are about to partake in. So with that, I would ask that you prepare your heart to that end. As I invite you now to turn in your copy of God's word with me to the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, as we continue in this sermon series in Philippians titled, Rejoice in All Things. And the text that the elders have assigned to me for these two weeks is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. And so this, this will be a two-part message, and the overall title that I have assigned to this two-part message is All for Christ, All for Christ. So let us begin now by reading this portion of Scripture, starting in verse 12, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word which he has spoken to us here through the pen of the Apostle Paul reads, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are, mu are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. 
And Father, we do thank you for your word. And Father, we pray, we pray, Lord, that you would help us all this morning. Father, that you would help to open hearts to receive your word. Lord, that you would help us to see our sin and our need for Christ. And that you would help me, Father, in the preaching of your word. That it would be honoring to you and faithful to the text. So, Father, help us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The late 1600s pastor, a Puritan pastor, Matthew Henry, said, The great desire of every true Christian is that Christ may be magnified and glorified, that his name may be great, and his kingdom come. Close quote. That is part and parcel of the Christian experience. Uh, when someone is brought to Christ, that is when God through the Spirit regenerates a hardened, unconverted heart, he puts within that new heart new desires. Desires that are God-seeking. Because prior to that, Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks after God. He puts in that heart of flesh desires that are kingdom-oriented, uh, whereas before they were rebellious to the throne, at enmity with God. The Christian's heart is one that has been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the marvelous light. And the Christian has been adopted into the royal family of the king of the universe. Therefore, a Christian is one who has been given the capacity and the desire to see Christ magnified and glorified. And who can wholeheartedly pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Though we may struggle at times to align our hearts with this reality, the Apostle Paul in this text serves as an encouragement as, and as an example to us Christians as to what possessing a heart that is all for Christ looks like in suffering, in living, and in death. And so this morning we will consider the first of those three headings, all for Christ in suffering. As the apostle pens this letter, he is imprisoned. He is suffering for Christ. Look at verse 13. He says, my imprisonment is for Christ. And indeed, that was the cause of his imprisonment. He is in Rome as he writes this letter. And by the time he arrives in Rome, he has already been in custody for about three years, all stemming from his teaching and preaching of the gospel, which led to an uproar at the temple in Jerusalem, at which point he was arrested. Now, three to four years later, he is in Rome, and in the past three years alone, he has suffered and survived violence, an assassination plot, shipwreck, a tempestuous journey, a venomous snake bite, above all things, hunger. He has stood before governors, a king, and other notable men to give a defense against his accusations. All of that prior to his arrival in Rome, where he now continues in custody, awaiting his trial before the most powerful man in the world, Emperor Nero. And it will be another two years after his arrival that his fate will be determined by the emperor in regard to these charges. And these two years are spent in house arrest. And it is believed that these house arrest homes were multi-level apartment buildings called insulas, which were just the typical type of apartment uh, buildings that most Roman citizens lived in. And, and uh, uh, some had shops on the ground floor that looked out into courtyards. And you can actually still see some of these standing in Rome today from as early as the second century. And the ones that were used for housing prisoners like Paul 
were the responsibility of the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard was an elite unit of soldiers, around 10,000 of them around this time, who were akin to today's Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, and Special Forces combined. They were the Emperor's personal bodyguards, and they were responsible for the transportation and security of high-profile arrestees, of which Paul was one of them. It is also believed, as Pastor Dan mentioned to you last Sunday, uh, that Paul was constantly chained at the ankle directly to an imperial guardsman 24-7. So don't be tempted to think that, oh, well, uh, he's just under house arrest. How bad could that be? Uh, Remember, he's not exactly in a luxurious high-rise. This is a first-century building. He doesn't even have air conditioning. I mean, that alone would be tremendous suffering for me. But remember, he is awaiting trial and constantly under direct supervision. And I can guarantee you that these soldiers, if they're anything like today's jailers, they are trying to become best buds with inmates. Uh, On the contrary, they are exerting a level of authority. Uh, They are on their guard at all times. Uh, A prisoner could pose a potential threat at any moment. And so jailers aren't exactly you know, bubbly and friendly. And so Paul is certainly not living the dream Italian staycation, right? And not only has he suffered a tremendous amount leading up to his arrival in Rome, uh, but now he is also suffering, in a sense, from attacks from within. And by within, I mean from supposed allies, fellow proclaimers of the gospel. Look at verse 14. He says that some brothers have become bold in their preaching by his imprisonment. And then verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Uh, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim it out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is just unimaginable, isn't it? That some professing Christians would go around preaching Christ with the very intention of afflicting an apostle of Christ? This is an attack from within, from those who should be standing shoulder to shoulder with Paul in the battlefield for the souls of men. But rather, out of selfish ambition, they are seeking to afflict him. Now, the Greek word here for afflict literally means pressure which constricts or rubs together or tribulation and especially internal pressure that causes someone to feel hopeless. But these are men who preach Christ. And this is the interesting thing as well. Notice that they actually preach Christ rightly. Notice that Paul doesn't say they preach another Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 11.4, any Jesus preached which is different from the one that Paul preaches is another Christ. It's a wrong Jesus, but these guys aren't preaching another gospel. They are preaching the true gospel but with wrong intentions. And I think it's safe to say that God was blessing the right preaching of these evil men to some degree. Presumably, uh, they were seeing true conversions faithful or fruitful ministry and in a sense they were getting what they wanted right they were obviously attaining some level of popularity because word of their preaching ministry reached the apostles here and so you naturally might be asking yourself but why would god use the preaching of insincere men with evil intentions to produce fruit Right? Why would he bless their ministries? Why would conversions happen or anything good come out of it at all? And the answer is to show his power. Right? Is that not what we read of in Exodus with Pharaoh? God hardens his heart to show his power, his glory. Exodus 9.15 But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all 
the earth. And so I think he uses wicked preachers in this text to show his power. How exactly? By showing us that it is the gospel message through which God manifests his power. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And I hope you can see the encouragement in that. Let it be a reminder to any of you who might be intimidated at the thought of sharing the gospel with someone because you're scared you won't have all the answers or you don't know the best method to go about sharing the message or to those of you who after you have shared, you beat yourselves up for not saying this or that or this or that in that way. Let it be a relief to you that what's, what's more important is the gospel truth that you share more than in the way in which you share it. It is less about you and more about the sweet medicine which itself has the healing properties. And you are called simply to deliver it. Now we are going a little off topic with this application here, but since I said all that, <clears throat> I need to add this as well. This does not mean that the preacher is of no importance. God used these wicked men here to spread his gospel message, but they have now stood before him and have given an account as to their wrong intentions and their peddling of God's word. And so God cares about the intentions and God cares about the holiness of the messengers. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And likewise, I think we can make the biblical argument that the same would go for preaching and sharing the gospel. And so I believe that we could rightly say the preaching of a righteous person has great power. Or the sharing of the gospel message by a righteous person has great power. God cares about the cleanliness of the pipes through which he pours out his living waters. And waters will flow quicker and cleaner through a shiny, clean pipe and slower and dirtier through a rusty and slimy one. And yes, I just compared us all to slimy pipes. And Paul Morgan, to pick on him again, <laughs> in our conversations about the trip and my preaching this morning, demanded that this sermon be beautifully illustrated. So there you go. But back to what I was saying, God blessing the preachers of these or the preaching of these wicked men is merely God using their evil for good. And the fact of the blessing is not the rule, but the exception. And so if I lost you there, what I'm merely trying to say is pursue holiness and godliness and share the gospel message in faith and without fear, because the gospel is the power of of God unto salvation. But back to our envious preachers. They are seeking to afflict Paul. And now I think it would be easy for us to think of how they're preaching a false gospel would afflict them. Right? But but why would their why would their preaching of a true gospel afflict them? What was their goal in their preaching? It certainly wasn't to see sinners saved and God glorified. They were preaching out of envy. They were mere opportunists, right? They wanted the nor, nor, notoriety. Nor, nor, wow, there you go. Jet lag. <laughs> they wanted the nor, <laughs> notoriety. There you go. That works. <laughs> Of Paul. <laughs> um, <clears throat> they wanted the quote unquote popularity, <clears throat> to use an easy word. They wanted the attention and love that Paul had from the people. 
covetousness was their sin. They were their own idols looking to place themselves up on a throne of fame. And so Paul is under arrest. So they're probably thinking we'll take his place by preaching the same thing he does. We'll eliminate the competition by having, by having him simply be forgotten. We can share the same message but be more eloquent, more appealing in our, in our delivery, more popular. Let him rot while we rule. And so they intended to afflict Paul. Suffering from every angle, from within, from without. But how does Paul respond to this? Does he respond as if afflicted? Does he sulk in self-despair? Have these envious traitors succeeded in bringing about hopelessness in Paul? On the contrary, right? What does he do? How does he respond to this affliction? He rejoices. Why? Because instead of having a self-focused, retrospective look at his situation, he has a Christ-reflecting, gospel-centered, all-for-Christ frame of mind. Look at the last sentence of verse 18 and following. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul has the right perspective that a Christian should have in suffering, that we should all have in our trials and tribulations. And in our text this morning, we see three elements that make up what an all-for-Christ view of suffering looks like. And let me quickly show you these. And first, let me just say, these don't just apply to finding yourself in prison for sharing the gospel. Uh, these truths should be true of any kind of suffering circumstance that you might find yourself in. They are heart attitudes that you should strive for, right? Whether you're suffering from an illness, a job loss, or whatever, we should frame our minds while we go through such trials and tribulations to reflect this all for Christ attitude. So here they are. These make up what an all-for-Christ view of suffering looks like from our text. Number one, it is gospel-centered. It is gospel-centered. Paul rejoices at these attacks from within, from these wicked preachers, because the gospel is being proclaimed. Verse 17, right? Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul cares more about producing gospel-sweetened fruits as the produce of his suffering than protecting or preserving his prominence or even his own life. And we can see that that has already proven true, can't we? What does he say in verse, uh, verses 12 and 13? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, I actually disagree with this translation that says imperial guard. If you have an NASB, you will notice that it says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the praetorian guard. And the Greek word for praetorian guard is simply praetorion, the word guard is not in the original language. And though the word praetorian did have the usage to refer to the quarters of the praetorian guard, I think it means here what it means in the other seven times that the word is used throughout the New Testament. That is, that it is the official residence of a governor or commander-in-chief. And so I would agree with the way in which the King James translates this portion as palace and reads, 
so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places, meaning the household of the commander in chief of the most powerful empire in the world, the household of Nero himself. Though Paul was imprisoned, though he was suffering, the sharing of the gospel message was his priority. Whatever his circumstances, right, he would use them and turn them in such a way that gospel ministry was at the forefront. So it wasn't just the imperial guard that knew that, the, that his imprisonment was for Christ. And it wasn't just them uh, that he had shared the gospel with. Paul was probably sharing the gospel indiscriminately and with anyone he came in contact with. Right? Turn to Acts uh, 28 with me really quick. Acts 28. Acts 28, and in verses 30 and 31, we see a parallel in the timeline of our text this morning. Uh, Luke here is writing of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, uh, where he writes the letter to the Philippians. And I just love these verses, verse 30. Uh, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, the thing I love here are these last two words, without hindrance, because I think there is more impact in the Greek. Uh, here, it's just a noun in our English translation. Uh, there was no hindrance placed upon him. Uh, some versions, like the King James, I think, missed the mark. And so say, no man forbidden, forbidding him. Uh, but in the Greek, this is just one word, and it's an adverb. <clears throat> and so it's actually modifying the verb proclaiming. And so what Luke is saying is that Paul welcomed all who came to him, and he lived there for two years proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness unhinderedly. It just shows the power of the gospel message. The kingdom advances forward, and neither the gates of hell nor the gates of Nero had the power to stop it. And look at some of the fruits of this pro, uh, unhinderedly proclaiming. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Go back to Philippians. Philippians 4, and look at verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And I promise you, that is not a Hispanic name, Cesar. He's talking about converts that live and or work in Nero's palace. All because Paul oriented his suffering in a gospel-centered manner. Are you going through some suffering right now? Have you considered that unbelievers around you are witnessing and paying really close, perhaps critical attention to how you respond to your suffering? Have you used your sufferings as a means to share the hope that is within you? Is your suffering gospel? Centered. Paul's was. And ours should be as well. And notice this too. The way you respond to your trials and tribulations can also help to encourage and edify your fellow believers. Back to Philippians 1. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given 
to us. If your suffering is permeated by a hope-filled, gospel-centered, all-for-Christ attitude, there is potential for tremendous blessing to propagate to yourself and those around you. Secondly, an all-for-Christ view of suffering is prayer-saturated. It is prayer-saturated. Look back at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul yearns for the prayers of fellow Christians, prayers that are rooted and grounded in the promises of God because he knows that God will use them through the Spirit to supply what is needed. And it is interesting that it sounds like he is supernaturally confident that he will be delivered, doesn't it? I know this will turn out for my deliverance, he says. But I would say that this is a prayerful hope. Because later on in Philippians 2, uh, and you can look there with me, verses 22 through 24, he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a with a father he has served with me in the gospel i hope therefore to send him just as soon as i see how it will go with me and i trust in the lord that shortly i myself will come also paul has a prayerful hope here a hope that is grounded and rooted in the promises of god in the promise that god works all things for good for those who love them and are called according to his purpose the promise that christ shed his blood on his behalf because his sins has been have been forgiven because he is a new creation in christ because he has been enlisted in the army of he who sits at the right hand of the father that he will never be left or forsaken and no one can and nothing can snatch him out of the father's hand and the Lord Jesus Christ will not lose him, but will raise him up on the last day. Leonard Ravenhill once said, The only power that God yields to is that of prayer. And what he meant by that is that God invites us to pray. Right? He delights in the prayers of his people. And he is determined to provide and work through those prayers. Psalm 17:6 I call upon you for you will answer me O God incline your ear to me hear my words Psalm 34:17 When the righteous cry for help the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles And so we pray we plead and he supplies and sustains Saturate your suffering with prayer ask for prayers from your fellow saints if you are in Christ, all these promises are for you to cling to through your trials with full confidence and prayerful hope. But if you are outside of Christ, if you have not bowed your knee to the Lordship of Christ, if you have not been born again, if you have not been reconciled to God, these promises are of no advantage to you. And so what do you have to cling to in your sufferings? An empty hope that somehow, sometime, your sufferings will come to an end? Friend, if you die in your sins, your sufferings will not end with your death. They will merely have just begun. But Christ is merciful and was willing to sacrifice himself so that sinners like you and me could spend eternity with no more suffering, but only savoring the fruits of grace and forgiveness. Repent and believe the gospel. Confess your sins to God. Cry out to him for, for forgiveness. Receive the free gift of salvation and become partakers of these sweet promises with us.
As Thomas Watson once said, better to be in, in a prison with God's promises and presence than to be on a throne without them. And so, an all-for-Christ view of suffering is saturated in prayer. And lastly, just as a closing statement, no need to expand much on this one because I think the other two are lesser included in this one, meaning the others follow if this one is true. And so the third mark of an all-for-Christ all view of suffering that we see in our text this morning is that the suffering is seen through the lens of God's sovereignty. It is the person who trusts in Christ and surrenders all at the feet of his sovereign rule that can then have that prayerful hope and gospel-centered view of suffering because we believe Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, which says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That this was the heart of Paul in his suffering. This is a heart that cries all for Christ. May the Lord grant us all a greater measure of these heart attitudes for his glory and his honor. Let's pray. And Father, <clears throat> suffering is such a reality of this life on this side of eternity. But Father, we thank you that for, for those of us who know Christ, Lord, we have a sure and steady anchor. Lord, that we can cling to in our sufferings, in our trials. And we know and we can pray and, and, and bring all of our needs and desires and, and, and troubles and hopes to your throne room. And know that you incline your ear to us. that you have the power to do all things. And Father, we pray that you would help us to gain more of these heart attitudes in our sufferings. Father, that we would be a light in this dark world, that there is suffering all around, and that we would be a light even in our suffering that points to Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would be glorified through that. And, Lord, we just thank you. We praise you and we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.